0: How are we doing, church? doing good? You look good? All right. Students, you look good too. Glad you guys are here. Hey, if you got your Bibles, go Acts chapter 28, Acts chapter 28. I do want to say welcome to everybody that's here. If this is your first time, welcome. I uh, especially do want to say welcome to our students and uh, hear from the say TRL, all right? So, uh, but so glad you're here and excited, and I don't know who picks the colors of your shirt, but uh, that's awesome. Um, and... But especially um, the the adult serve staff volunteers that gave your weekend, right? That's praise the Lord for you. And even maybe even more so those of you that um, invited students to stay in your house for the weekend. Um, What a great use of your home. And so when you are repainting walls and it's like you had seventh grade boys and you're trying to get that smell out of the bonus room, just remember... It was for the sake of the kingdom of God. I also want to thank all the people that are in the sanctuary worshiping there, and our students that are worshiping there, and those of you at 522 in the sanctuary. Thank you, thank you, thank you for worshiping there. We are, um, we are in the very last, uh, the last sermon on the book of Acts. Isn't that cool? It took the video four and a half minutes to cover it. It took me 18 months, but um, that's just how it goes. But before we dive in, I want to just give you a heads up on what's happening next week. Lent begins next week. Um, Um, I know you guys all know about Fat Tuesday, but that's not really our gig. We're more in Ash Wednesday, and so uh, Ash Wednesday, we are, our version of that here is we're kicking off with uh, an elder-led prayer meeting right here on March the 5th at 6.30. It's just a kind of different worship experience. We'll sing and pray and talk. It'll be all those things, and so be here for that, and then all throughout Lent, which is Kind of 40 days. We just kind of subtract all the Sundays out. It's a journey to prepare for our celebration of Resurre- Resurrection Sunday, but we're not ready yet. That's why we've got to have Lent. And so as a church, <laughs> we pray and we fast and we give. And so every Tuesday, we're going to fast from food from sun up to sundown. Uh, and then we're going to meet in here for a time of prayer. And since you're not eating anyway, your lunch hour is free. See how that works out. And so from 12 to 1, if you can make it, we'd love for you to come here for a time of prayer. Um, also, we, we, if you're medically able, we fast from food. Again, sunup to sundown. Some of you Pharisees start the day before. That's fine. Do whatever you want to do. All right? Pharisee. So, but we're going to go sunup to sundown um, all together. Then we also, most of us will choose some other area of our life to fast from. And, and typically what I would just encourage you to do is just find that thing in your world that, where the world has a grip on you because you're not, you're not a citizen of this world. And by denying yourself of that thing for 40 days, it just reminds you that Jesus and his grace is more than enough. And so you might not need whatever it is. You know, Some people fast from certain media or certain foods or whatever it is, all right? And, and what you fast from isn't the most important thing, but just to be devoted to God and have to lean into him In times of need is what it's all about. And so we do that over Lent. And so the the details of that are on the back of your bulletin. Also, on your way out today at the Connect Center, at the uh, worship kiosk, and also at the Welcome Center, um, our spiritual formation team and our worship team have come together and put together uh, a little tool for you called the Road to Redemption to help you prepare yourself, to help us prepare ourselves for Lent. And it's just daily um devotionals and spiritual disciplines like scripture reading and prayer and meditation and journaling and some of that kind of stuff and it's just a day-by-day guide and then our worship band put together a cd that corresponds with what we're doing the seven weeks of lent are called the seven deadly sins all right so all you catholics will feel right at home you'll just come on and learn all about the seven deadly sins and uh and and also I'll be preaching every single one of them. And then the, the Lent guide, the worship guide, the C D all of that is in correspondence with where we are each of the seven weeks. So this is a big, big deal. If you grew up Baptist like I did and you never fasted before, I know I didn't either. You know, we put gravy on everything but ice cream all the time. We didn't even do Lent. So this is this is like new and fresh for me too over the past four or five years. And so as a whole church, we join together and pray and fast and give to be prepared for Resurrection Sunday. But before we get there next week, this week we are in the final sermon, not ever. I'm sure we'll preach more from Acts in the years to come. But we started the book of Acts um, 18 months ago. And today is is the very last installment of this year and a half Bible study through the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 11, we'll dig in and talk about the rest of the story. So Acts, Acts 28... Verse 11, it says, after three months, we, and the we is Paul and uh, Luke and this whole group of people that were shipwrecked last week. Well, now they're, they're um, done with the shipwreck and done with the snake-bitten part, and now they're going to set sail. So after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figurehead. And putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit, and we arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Patolia. Now, I've told you this before, but the reason that Luke includes these kind of details is because this is not a fairy tale. This is not once upon a time in a land far, far away, some stuff happened, but these are actual people, actual events, this is historical fact, it happened. And so if you lived in the first century, and you were reading this letter, and you read about Regium, you'd be like, I've been there before, we went there on our honeymoon 25 years ago, all right? It's an actual place. And so they want you to know that it's actually happened. Verse 14, and there in Petolia, there we found brothers. Now notice the family language. All throughout the book of Acts, the word to describe Christians from other Christians is not, it's not even, it's not believers, it's not disciples, but it talks about us being brothers and sisters. It's why we at the church of 1122 call ourselves one big dysfunctional family. Because God is our father, Jesus is our brother, and look around, this is our family. We get that right out of the Bible. There we found brothers, and we're invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome, verse 15, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, they came as far as the Forum of Appius and Three Taverns, sounds like a couple bars, doesn't it? That's where they came from, to meet us. Well, the reason they heard of us is because... Paul had already written Romans earlier and sent it to Rome, and so the book of Romans has been circulating the province of Rome, and so the Christians had already been reading this. And so when the author of the only piece of the New Testament they had, had, they found out he was in Rome, they would show up from three taverns and visit him. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God, and he took courage, verse 16, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, this is a part of the sovereignty of God. Remember, Paul's been arrested. He's been on trial. It seems like about once a month, Paul goes to trial. And and the courts are having a hard time pinning a sentence on him. And so when they hear the accusations against him, they realize it's not really worthy of the death penalty, but Paul is steadfast to go to Rome. And so, when he finally gets there, he actually gets to stay on his own. Now, he's under surveillance. He's under armed guard. He's literally chained to a Roman guard. But it's an incredibly favorable jail situation. And this is a part of how God is working. Because the two years that he is in Rome allows him to plant churches and to write scripture, like he writes a letter to a little church planter named Timothy. And he writes first and second Timothy, and he writes to encourage another church planter named Titus, which are both um, books in the New Testament. And he writes to churches that he's already planted, like the church at Philippi, called Philippians. He writes this letter called Philippians. And in Philippians, while he's in jail, he says things like this in Philippians 1, 2. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In other words, you won't catch Paul complaining about his outward situation because he, know that God never, he knows that God never wastes a hurt, that God has placed him on purpose for the sake of the kingdom. And he also knows, understands, and, and joyfully embraces the fact that God doesn't mind um, disrupting our temporary comfort for someone else's eternal destiny. And so he can write while in jail to the church at Philippi, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. You mean those people that were arresting you to try to get you to quit talking about Jesus? Yeah, those guys. They love Jesus now too, all right? That, that's just who Paul was. So, that it has become known through the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ, and... Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So that's Paul's attitude while he is arrested and put in Rome. Now, there are several times we've studied in the past few months where Paul could have gotten out of this sentence and situation. All he had to do was defend himself. But every single time he gets in this situation, he just proclaims the gospel, which is why he was under arrested in that situation. But ultimately, he was faithful and obedient to God's call in his life. And so if you look back to Acts 21 and 22, you will see that Jesus told Paul that he was going to go to Rome to proclaim the gospel. And so now here he is. And the crazy thing is, As if you would look at his outward circumstances, you would think he would be miserable. And yet, in that same book, in Philippians, he writes these words, I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. Because it didn't matter where he was. All that mattered was whose he was. And he knew he was bought and purchased and paid for by Jesus. And he was on mission. And so that's the attitude of Paul even here under guard. Verse 17. And after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews... And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appear to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. In other words, what Paul's doing here is, He's gathered the Jewish leaders together and he's saying, hey, listen, fellas, I am not against you. I'm for you. Okay, the same God that you worship, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Well, there's more to the story and his name is Jesus. But I want you to know here, I'm not against you. I'm actually for you. He continues in verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this change. Now, it's a total play on words here. The hope of Israel is a a phrase that the Old Testament uses often. The prophets used it all the time. And when the Bible would talk in the Old Testament about the hope of Israel, what most good Orthodox Jewish people believed is that one day, God would send a conquering king to come in and wipe out Rome or or whatever country was in charge at that point and put Israel back in its rightful place as a city on a hill for the whole world. But what Paul knew is that what God sent originally was not the king to wipe things out, to wipe out the Caesar and wipe out Rome. But he he sent this king of kings as a suffering servant to die on the cross. And so the hope of Israel was not political power, but the hope of Israel was actually Jesus himself. And so he says, "It's, it's for the name of Jesus that I am on trial. And I'm wearing these chains. Verse 21. And so they say to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, he's talking about Christianity. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So, part of what Paul wants to know from these Jewish guys is so, what, do you, what have you heard about us? Because I want you to know I'm here for you, I'm not against you, but what have you heard about us? Because the church kind of had a bad reputation. And quite honestly, It makes sense because the truth is the gospel is offensive. It just is. Now, if you water it down and change it into something it's not, it can be palatable to everybody, and it's kind of a popular way to do church these days. But here, we want to let you know the gospel is is offensive. I mean, the whole thing starts out with, welcome, all of you wretched, black-hearted sinners. All right? The diagnosis of who we are to begin with is enemies of God. Is that offensive? Of course it's offensive. But it's just the diagnosis of the gospel. In fact, I've got a very dear friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine, who's wrestling through the gospel, sent me a text recently. He's also very successful. He sends me a text, and he says, I will donate $50,000 to the church if you'll quit calling us wretched, black-hearted sinners. And I just went, look how sinful that was. Are you trying to buy off God? I mean, you know, you can't do that. It's just terrible, isn't it? Call somebody a sinner? Who do you think you are calling me a sinner? Well, I'm just kind of reading the mail here, okay? I don't write it. It's just what it says about you. And me too. You're not a rainbow. You're not a snowflake, all right? You're wretched, black-hearted sinners. All of us, me included. And so that's the diagnosis. And then to make it worse, the gospel says that Jesus comes along and makes these audacious claims like he's God and only he can forgive sin. And then Jesus said, he's the way and the truth and the life and no one can get to the father except through him. To which you could, if you if you're from another religion, you're especially going wait a minute, that's that's pretty audacious, right? I didn't grow up in that tradition. We go, well good news, even you are invited, but the way to get there is through Jesus. And if you've ever If you've ever tried to share the gospel with somebody that was atheist, agnostic, a member of another religion, I bet it even felt awkward to you. It it has to me too. And there's been times where I went, God, why don't you just forgive everybody and just call an all-skate, you know? All right, couple skates over, all-skate. Everybody on the dance floor. Here we go. Everybody's in. Whatever road you want to take, adult swims over, kids get in the pool, whatever it is. I don't understand. Why don't you just do that? And the reason is because... Only Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection forgives sin. And the problem is a sin problem that you and I have sinned against an almighty God. And the good news of the gospel is that everybody's invited, everybody gets in the same way, and the price has already been paid. It's exclusively inclusive. And so the gospel message itself is offensive. But. Notice here, so far, but that doesn't mean that we have to be offensive, okay? That doesn't mean that we have to be disrespectful or that we have to be arrogant. I don't understand the arrogance of the Christian that smugly looks down their nose at somebody and says, well, you know what? I'm going to heaven and you're going to hell. I'm better than you because I don't sin as much as you do. The point of Ephesians chapter 2, which Paul writes from here is, um, he says, He's basically saying, Christian, who do you think you are to look down on a sinful world? Because you too were once dead in your trespasses, and you didn't save you. It was God's grace that saved you. So there's no room in the kingdom of God for the arrogant Christian. There can't be such a thing. Because you can't simultaneously look down your nose at a sinful world and have your eyes fixed up on the cross. It is impossible. And so the gospel is offensive. offensive. It just is. It diagnoses us as a a sinner and then tells us we're in a hopeless situation where you can't even do anything about it. But then the good news of the gospel is, but God, being rich in mercy, he's just, yes and amen, but he's also the justifier. He has paid your way for all who would believe, for anyone, whosoever, would surrender their life unto Christ. But again, that doesn't mean that we have to be offensive. That so, in other words folks, that doesn 't mean you don't, you're a jerk about the about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ because you if you are a jerk in the presentation of the message it 's just evidence that you don't understand the grace saturated gospel that is the message, and so he he kind of lays it out there for him, saying that he 's here um, and and he's and he 's for them he 's not against them, and it makes sense that it makes sense that that some people would be speaking negatively about this sect of Christianity. Why? Because the message itself is offensive. And so he goes on. Verse 23. It says, And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers." So you see what happens here. Paul invites these guys in and says, Hey, what do you know about the gospel? We know that it's a little offensive, but we'd love for you to come and ask questions. And so they set up a day for these people to come to his home so that he could talk to them about the message of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that they come to him at his lodging in great number. So people that, you know, especially people that say they don't like big churches, they would have really hated the church in Acts. The very first church in Acts, remember how many people got saved on day one? Three thousand Guess how many people were here day one? A little over 3,000, right? So if you don't like big churches, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm good. Like, little churches are great. Medium-sized churches are great. Big churches are great. All gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing churches. Great, great, great. But these churches, they were big, and lots of people come. And here's why. Apparently, Paul creates an environment in his home where people can come in and hear the gospel where people felt welcome to come in, even if they didn't believe what he believed. That is a driving force behind why we do church the way we do church here at the Church of 1122. It's why we have over 1,000 people on our serve staff who every single week show up here early to get the house ready for all of our guests that are coming in. Now, I don't know if you know this, but do you know that there are actually some people in this world that don't need parking attendants to help them park, in a parking lot with lines on it, you know? So we think that you could actually park yourself and find your way to the church with a big 50-foot cross right in front of it. But you know what we want to do? We want you to feel welcome. We want you to feel welcome. We want you to welcome you at the door and welcome you at the welcome center. And we put the connect center here. Why? So you could get connected. We did all of those things that we have. We have serve staff that are working with our children right now in a clean and safe environment where they're getting the gospel from some adults that have been trained in the gospel to share it appropriately with whatever age our kids are over there. Why? Because I want you to feel like you belong even before you believe. The, the Church of 1122 is a movement for all people, all people. And we'll talk about it in a little while, but I believe if you feel like you belong here, you're not, you're not too far away from believing. Why? Because it's God that saves and not me. And so what Paul does is he creates this environment where people who, who weren't even like him could show up in this environment and they liked him. Why? Because he was for them and not against them. And so all these great numbers are showing up to his house, and here's what he does. It says, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. So let's break that down. <clears throat> from morning till evening. All right, so Paul preached all day. So I don't want to hear about my 50 minutes, all right? All day. All day. And he expounded them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and listen, and trying to convince them about Jesus. So Paul wasn't into, hey, you believe what you believe, and I'll believe what I believe, and then we'll just see how it works out. No, 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 no. That that Paul made argument. Paul tried to convince. And and the way he would try to convince these guys is the Bible says that he walked through what we would know as the Old Testament, the books of Moses and the prophets, And what he's telling them is essentially, this isn't Sunday school stories, but everything in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scripture from Genesis to Malachi, it's really all about one thing. And the one thing is it's all about Jesus. And now I'm kind of speculating here, but I I don't know exactly what text that Paul went to in the Old Testament, but it really doesn't matter because you could go anywhere. And the whole point is that Jesus came to save sinners. That's the whole point of the Old and New Testament. And so maybe he started out in Genesis from the very beginning. And he told these Jewish leaders, in the beginning, God said, let us make man in our own image. And you'd think, well, who is he talking to? Are there like three or four people up there? No, there's one God in three persons. And the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not because they were lonely, but because God is love. And out of an overflow of his love, he decided to make heaven and earth and create people. And he created man, and he breathed life into his nostril. He put in him the Ruah of God, or the Spirit of God, or the Pneuma of God. And it made mankind unique among all the other creation. And then, there's man and woman, created by God, in this perfect environment, the Garden of Eden. And they were in perfect relationship with the Heavenly Father. And they walked together through the cool of the day, and they had... had No hindrance in their relationship with God. And that's how the whole thing started. And and if you think God is into a bunch of rules, then you don't know God. Because there was only one rule. And the rule was, don't eat of that tree. Now, you can eat anything else you want to eat. You can play with the lion and pet the tiger and go surfing. You do whatever you want to do. Just don't eat of that tree. Now, that was the only rule. There were some commandments. You know what one of the commandments of God was? He made Adam and Eve naked, and you know, he looked at Adam, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Praise God. That was a commandment? Wake up every morning, we go, hey, Eve, I just feel like obeying the Lord today. I'll be fruitful, you multiply. All right, let's do this. Come on. So, that's our God. And it went really, really well for one page. That's how long we made it. (laughs) And then, the enemy comes along. And tricks Eve, and Adam is literally right there. Elbow to elbow is what the Hebrew means. And they both eat the fruit. They both disobey God. And sin enters into the world, and there's a fracture between this this relationship between people and their God. And God comes to the man because he is responsible and says, what have you done? And you've broken the one rule that you had. And just like any good man, he says, wasn't me, the woman you gave me, she made me eat it. And abdicates his responsibility. And then she blames the serpent. And then God comes to the serpent and curses the serpent and everything. Curses the whole world. We live in a fractured world now. <clears throat> and he comes to the enemy, the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the offspring of this woman. And you will bruise his heel, but her offspring will crush your head. Theologians call that the proangelion, the first gospel. Before we even make it out of Garden of Eden, God is already saying, okay, the thing is broken, but I'm going to send somebody that's going to fix it. An enemy, you're going to think that you've bruised his heel at the cross. But on the day of resurrection, he's going to crush your head. And so remember, Paul's probably taking this from from the Garden of Eden and saying, see, see folks, what he's talking about here is the Messiah that's going to come or that has come. And then before Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, the Bible says that God makes for them garments, which means an animal for the very first time in human history had to shed its blood and give its life. And God made garments to cover Adam and Eve. And so blood was shed to cover over the sin and shame of mankind. And then maybe he went to Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, that guy. And he said, Hey, you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? And Abraham had this promise from God to have a promised son. And he, his wife finally gives birth to a son. And he's called his only begotten son. And then God calls Abraham, the father of faith, to take his only begotten son up to the hill to sacrifice Isaac. And so the Bible says that Abraham's taken Isaac up onto the hill. And Isaac's not like a little tiny kid. He can walk and talk and carry wood and an axe and fire. And he says, Dad, we've got all the stuff for the altar, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham in faith says, Don't worry, son. God will provide. And he takes his only begotten son, and he lays him on the altar and raises this knife to kill him out of obedience to God. And then God says, Stop. So you think you got some parent issues? Imagine. And God says, Stop. But behold, in the thicket is a ram who's caught He's caught. Now listen, I go hunting every Monday. I've never run up on an eight-pointer just stuck in the thicket, okay? This is a miracle. You city people don't even realize how big of a miracle this is. And then what happens is God says, no, okay, you can use that ram as a substitute. And so Paul's saying, hey, that wasn't just putting away child's sacrifice forever and ever. It was also a picture that God would send his only begotten son as a substitute sacrifice. And then through a series of events in Genesis, the nation of Israel, the children of God, end up slaves in Egypt. And then God comes along through a burning bush and calls out one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world, Moses, and calls him, Moses, Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Remember the movie? And so there's Moses. He's standing before him, let my people go. And the Pharaoh says, no. And they go back and forth. And so God starts sending these plagues, crazy plagues, like Locusts show up and gnats and frogs. At one point, frogs just come all over the place. This crazy stuff. Rivers turn into blood, all kind of stuff. But Pharaoh won't budge. He almost budges a few times, but he won't. And so then God comes with the final plague. And he says, Moses, go and tell your people that the angel of death is going to come through Egypt. And the, and the firstborn of every family will die unless... You go and you find a perfect spotless lamb and you shed the blood of that lamb and you take the blood of the lamb and you put it on the doorpost of your house and on that night, the angel of death will pass over any home that has the blood of the spotless lamb on the doorpost of their home. And so all the dads went to their firstborn sons and said, hey, bud, look, we got to go sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost of our house. And the firstborn sons were like, that's not fair. It's not fair. The lamb didn't do anything. And the dad said, well, it's you or the lamb. And the kids went, that one looks spotless and perfect there. Come here, lamb. Come on. All right. And sure enough, they sacrificed the lamb, put the, put the blood there, and the angel of death passes over, and everyone, every household that has the blood of the lamb On the doorpost of that house, the angel of death passes over. And Paul's saying that wasn't just about freeing people from Egypt. It was a picture of the perfect spotless lamb that would shed his blood. And you put his blood on the doorway of your heart. And the angel of death passes over you. And then from there, he could have gone on to Moses going up to Mount Sinai. Then Moses goes to Mount Sinai and gets the Ten Commandments or the Law. And while, while Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the law, the people of God are actually breaking the law that they're receiving in that moment. Moses comes down, he gets mad, and he, he breaks the Ten Commandments and he's got to do a redo and go get another copy and then he finally comes back down. And the law, the Ten Commandments, weren't so that we would be better people. It was just proof it was like a mirror up to our lives so that we could see how wretched and depraved we are and we can't even obey the top 10 moral laws. Like the first one, have no other gods before me. Uh-oh. The second one, have no idols. Uh-oh. The third one, what's the third one? It says, it says uh, do not profane the name of God or don't use the Lord's name in vain. And you go, oh my God, oops, and then you do it right there. The fourth one is obey the Sabbath and keep it holy. And you're thinking, do people even do that anymore except for Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A? I mean, who even does that? What's the next one? Maybe I can get one of these. Well, the fifth one is obey your parents. Well, if you made it past nine years old, you messed that one up, right? Can I get an amen from the pink shirts? Thanks. You really shouldn't amen there. It's proof you're not listening. So <laughs> you just damned yourself, which is six. Six. Don't commit murder. And when you get to the murder, when you finally go, okay, finally, there's one. I have never killed anybody. And then Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say unto you, if you've ever hated anyone in your heart, or in our context, if you've ever driven on JTB at 5 o'clock, you've <laughs> sinned. What's next? The seventh one is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, I've been faithful to my wife. And then Jesus says, if you've ever lusted after a woman in your heart, you go, know, all right, well, I'm quite out there. Uh, Eight is don't lie. Or actually, no, eight is don't steal. Number nine is don't lie. Number 10, do not covet. If you've ever watched HDTV, you broke the 10th commandment right there. It's over. <laughs> if you've ever, I want that. You're dead. Okay, that's how it works. <laughs> and so the point is not do better, try harder. The point of the 10 commandments were you're hopeless. You got no chance. You ever promise God, God, if you get me out of this one, I'll never do it again. Your girlfriend was probably holding your hair back, right? (laughs) And then you prayed that again? Right, it's the point. And so Paul's saying, so the point of the law is to show us that we we needed help, that we couldn't do it. It's why when you get to Leviticus, they had to set up the sacrificial system because we were all lawbreakers. And so they built this temple. They built a temple, and in the middle of the temple, they put this little room called the Holy of Holies. And that's where God's presence was. there was a little throne there called the mercy seat. And, And at the foot of the throne was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And it's where they kept the Ten Commandments. If you'd like to study more about that, the Raiders of the Lost Ark will tell you everything you need to know about the Ark of the Covenant. And so there's the Ark of the Covenant, the law of God. And God's presence was in the Holy of Holies. And there was this big curtain in between God's presence and regular people like me and you. We couldn't go in. And then once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would ceremonially cleanse himself, and then he'd take two animals, usually a goat and a lamb, and gather all the nation of Israel, and all of the nation of Israel would confess their sins to the priest, and the priest would transfer the sins of the people to the head of this goat, and then take the goat to the edge of the city and cast him into the wilderness. And the people would see their transferred sin be taken away from them, and and they would cast that goat as far as the east is from the west. And then the other lamb would be like sweet, but it wasn't sweet for that lamb either because they'd sacrifice that lamb, shed its blood. And then the high priest who who had been sanctified before God would go into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, and he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb over the commandments of God to cover over our sin for one year. And it happened year after year after year. And so when the Bible says that Paul reasoned with them, and expounded upon the, the Old Testament, that's probably the kind of things he was doing. He would say, hey, listen, Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the spotless lamb. The whole temple points to who Jesus is. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn, and now we get to enter into the very presence of God that his blood shed was the, the propitiation for our sin once and for all. And then, and then the Bible says that he went to the prophets, and I don't know which prophets he went to. He could have gone to, to Psalm chapter 22, and said, hey, listen, Jewish leaders, you know this verse. Remember when David cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do You know, Jesus cried out the same words on the cross, and they were not verses about God abandoning him because he couldn't look on sin. That that interpretation of of Jesus' words on the cross always bothered me. I've heard people say that God couldn't look down on Christ on the cross, therefore he turned his back on him because God can't look at sin, and I thought, well, how in the heck does he look at me? because I'm loaded up with it, and yet he promised me that he would never leave me or forsake me. And so it was actually what's called a remez. A remez was a, um, a, a Jewish tradition where the rabbi would quote the beginning of a verse, and all the Orthodox Jewish people that had memorized the Bible would know the rest of the verse. The same thing can happen here. Like if I go, happy birthday, it just happens, right? Or watch this one. I like, big, see what just happened in your head? It's crazy, isn't it? Don't blame me. Learn it from the rabbi. All right. So Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Psalm 22, David, he was quoting David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer by night, but I find no rest. He goes on to say, all who see me mock me. He trusts the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue himself, for he delights in the Lord. And then David, a thousand years before Jesus goes to the cross, says these words, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. By the way, crucifixion was invented 300 B.C. This was written 1,000 B.C. So 700 years before there ever was such a thing as crucifixion, David is saying these words, A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. And then the way Psalm 22 ends is this. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. That's us. It's being fulfilled right this second. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Once again, that's us. And here's what we proclaim. That he has done it. And so maybe what Paul is saying is, hey, you remember when you memorized Psalm chapter 22? What that was about was this coming Messiah that fulfilled all those things that Paul was talking about. And he could have gone to every single prophet in the Old Testament and pointed to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And then there's 400 years of silence, the time between the Old and the New Testament. And then maybe Paul told him about John the Baptist. And then out of nowhere, this guy shows up on the scene just screaming at people at the Jordan. And, you know, and thousands of people will show up. You know, if, you just, if, you, if you're consistently standing in front of people and just scream at them every week after week after week, thousands will show up to hear what you're saying. And that's what he did. Behold, he's preaching, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And then one day while he's baptizing people, he stops everything and says, behold. And that means, hey, pay attention, listen up. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of all the world. Not another Lamb of God that comes to cover the Jewish people's sin for another year. But behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away or remove the sin of all the world. And everybody's looking around for some like angel, right? Somebody to float in. What? You know, some white robe with a Miss America sash and no split ends and kind of Swedish. But it's not. It's a carpenter's son from Galilee. Comes walking on down the hill. And then John the Baptist baptizes, dip, dunk, submerge, his first cousin, Jesus of Nazareth. And then the heavens open up, and God Almighty says, Behold, my son in whom I am well pleased. And so Paul's probably saying, Hey, that guy, that kid Jesus, he was actually the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament was talking about. And then for three years, Jesus walked around and he would do stuff and he would say, just as the scriptures said he would do those things and he would teach about who god is and what it's like to have a relationship with god and he would gather these religious people and he would say you know god as sovereign lord and that's true and you know him as maker of heaven and earth and that's true and you know him as almighty judge and that's true but 189 times in the new testament in the gospels jesus says but he's our father above all else he wants you to know him as father and that through Jesus, you could be adopted into his family. And Jesus said crazy stuff like, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And then Jesus goes to the cross. And they pierce his hands and feet, just like Psalm 22 said they would. And he's hanging on the cross. And the first thing he says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he, he says some other things. checks on his mom, makes sure she's good. He, he has a conversation about salvation with the thieves next to him. He says he thirsts and gets a drink to fulfill the scripture. And then he says this. This is how he ends the cross. He says these words, it is finished. Psalm 22, the way it ends is it shall be done. The Hebrew in Psalm 22 and the Aramaic, it is finished, are essentially the exact same thing. And then on that cross, Jesus says it is finished. What is finished? What is finished is what God said to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. You shall bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. What is finished is the sacrificial system set up by the Levites of the the yearly day of atonement. What is finished are the Ten Commandments. Not that he came to do away with them, but he is the fulfillment of them. And so he expounds for hours and hours and hours to the point where he's saying that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest no man boast. That it's the point of the whole Bible from the very first page to the very end. And then he probably went on to say, and three days later, Jesus came out of the grave, appeared to over 500 people for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. And listen, and remember, this is Paul talking to some Jewish leaders, and he probably said, hey, I'm just like you were. I thought this was crazy too. I thought this was gonna ruin our religion. I was not a fan In fact, I had set out to stamp out this message that Jesus was the Son of God, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God. And so I was on my way to Damascus to crush this movement. And then out of nowhere, there was a bright light. And the very one, the hope of Israel that the prophets talked about was standing before me and knocked me off my horse and bright light shone down on me. And he said, Saul, why do you kick against the goats? And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, right answer and picked me up and gave me a little Bible study and then sent me here to you to tell you that you could know him and be forgiven of your sin and set free just like I have been. And he did that all day long with anybody that would show up to his house. And then check out verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Some were convinced, and others disbelieved. Now, here's what this must mean, that only God saves, that only God can change a human heart, and the reason why I preach the gospel every single week is because I know I can't change anybody's heart, that only God saves, and some of you have said some very nice things to me about the way I preach, and I appreciate it, and keep them coming, all right, if you ever think, maybe I should, yes, you should, say it, all right? And you say, well, you're insecure? Yes, I'm human, all right? I love to get encouraged. But I'm pretty sure the guy that writes the things we preach out of was a better preacher than me, and he delivers the word of God. And some people believe, and some people disbelieve. Why? Because it's God that saves. You you know where this is um, best illustrated? Is when, in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus, the resurrected, crucified Jesus, he's been appearing to over 500 people for 40 days, and eating breakfast with the disciples, and getting everybody ready for the mission of the church, and he's standing before people on, in Matthew 28 on this mountainside, and he gives them the great commission, therefore go and make disciples of all the nation. And then the Bible says that he rises up or ascends into heaven, that he floats up to the right hand of God the Father. I mean, there he is, just whoa, floating into the clouds. And then the Bible says some of them bowed down and worshipped him, but others still doubted. Is that crazy? That that you're standing there, and Jesus, who who was dead 41 days ago, and you were at the crucifixion, so you saw him beaten and mangled and dead and put in the grave, and now he's been walking around and talking to people, and he says, and behold, I will be with you, even to the very ends of the age. Peace out. He didn't say peace out, but I did. And then he goes, and he floats into heaven. And some people go, he is God, and they bow down and worship And other people go, I don't know. I mean, really? So what if there's a guy on an island that doesn't know about this? Or... He said, nothing of the dinosaurs or, I mean, so here's the thing. Only God saves. I can't change your heart. Now, now here's why this should give you a lot of comfort and relief. That um, if it's true that only God saves and that only God can change a heart, then you should share the gospel with confidence because the results are up to God. That you're just obedient to share the good news of Jesus Christ Because we love him, we're obedient to him, and we love the people that God has placed in our lives so much that we are faithful when given an opportunity to share the gospel, to pour into somebody else's life. And you know that the results are up to him. It's why I I feel the weight of what I do as a pastor, and yet the relief that all the results are up to the Lord. So over a thousand people have surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, And so, I I get credit for zero of that. Zero. All glory goes to him because he's the only one that can change hearts. And I know this because I've had the opportunity to lead a whole lot of people to Jesus. And yet, the people that I pray most for don't know him yet. They don't. And and I can explain it every way I can think of. And yet, they don't know him yet. And so if you actually believe that everybody spends forever somewhere, and you actually believe that Jesus has made a way for people to have their sins forgiven and know God as Heavenly Father, then the knowledge that God can save and that and the God does save should compel us to, to do what Paul has done here and to do whatever it takes to share the gospel with the people that God has placed in your life. And so in verse 25, it says, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made this one statement. Now, this is kind of offensive from Paul. He says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your forefathers through Isaiah the prophet. He's gonna quote Isaiah chapter six, verse nine. And Jesus also quotes this same verse in Matthew 13, 14. And here's the verse. It says, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. In other words, um, there are some of you in this room right now, and you get it, but you don't get it. Like, you could pass a theology exam on what it takes to get into heaven, but the problem is he's not Lord of your life. That you know the stuff. You know God loves you. You know John three sixteen, You know propitiation and substitutionary atonement, and you know. I mean, you could say that. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You know that, but you don't know him. Like you've never surrendered your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah prophesied that that would happen. And Jesus said that this would happen too. And so Paul is quoting it again. And Jesus in the parable of the sower says this, that the kingdom of God is like a farmer that goes out to sow seed. And he sows seeds in all these different places. In some places it grows up like crazy. In some places it grows up for a little while and then it dies because it has no roots. In some places it starts to grow up but it gets choked out by the thorns. And then in some places the enemy steals it before it can ever take root. And he's talking about the delivery of the gospel. And essentially what Jesus is saying is this. It's a heart issue, not a delivery issue. Now I'm not abdicating my responsibility to deliver the word All right, I spend a lot of hours every week. I study like crazy. And quite honestly, I just enjoy it. I enjoy studying. I enjoy getting ready to preach. I enjoy this part. I enjoy when the lights come up. I wish you could see your own faces. There's like 1,500 people in here or something. And the whole room goes, like all at one time. I love it. I love the way you let me preach and be myself and we can laugh together and not take ourselves too seriously but dig into the word. I love all that. I love to fall out of the gospel when we're done. I love praying for people, in. I love all that. But here's what I know. It's not the delivery of the seed. It's the condition of the soil of your heart. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. He says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear. And with their eyes, they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. That's why we preach the gospel here, not moralistic, therapeutic deism. We don't just do principle-based, here's how to be a better version of you and have good friends and raise nice kids and all that. We just preach the gospel because only the gospel saves. Only God can change a heart. And every single week, I pray like crazy that you wouldn't just get it, but you would get it, that he would get you. And you would surrender your life to the lordship of Christ and not just believe, but that you would turn so that God could heal you. I can't change you, but God can heal you. Verse 28, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Verse 30, and he lived there for two whole years at his own expense and he welcomed all who came to him that's why this church is a movement for all people all kind of people regardless of where you are on the spectrum some of you don't believe anything you're just here because it's the only way she'll go to lunch with you all right you're welcome to be here all right good luck with that i'm gonna talk her out of dating you in a few weeks some of you Some of you just, you know, you go to like four services today. You know, you went to 9, you came to 1122, you can come to 522. And if celebration will start one at 3 o'clock, you'll go to that one too, all right? You're welcome here too, that all are welcome because we're a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 31, here's what he did for two years in his house, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. In other words, Christians, this is what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That our job is to, to bring heaven to earth, that thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven, that that's what we're supposed to do. And that's what we're gonna do at the Church of 1122. So we're gonna serve our community, we're gonna serve one another, we're gonna serve the poor in this world, we're gonna proclaim the name of Jesus, we're gonna make a difference in Jacksonville, in Florida, and to the ends of the earth, in the name of Jesus Christ. And so he says, we pre, he pre, proclaimed the kingdom of God, And he taught about the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he just taught the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, and told people to surrender their lives to Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Do you know what you speak boldly about? You speak boldly about the things you believe in deeply. But you're scared to open your mouth when you don't have those deep kind of convictions. And then it just ends. That's how it ends. Well, what happened to Paul? You know why it ends this way? Paul's not the point. You know what the point was? That the gospel was proclaimed boldly and without hindrance. And so, here's what happened. About 30 years before this is where we'll start. In 30 AD, at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus gathers together 12 disciples and he says this, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In 33 AD, in Jerusalem, Jesus, Jesus gathers 120 followers and says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In 42 AD, Mark goes to Egypt. In 49, Paul goes to Turkey. In 51, Paul goes to Greece. In 52, Paul goes, uh, Thomas goes to India. In 54, Paul goes on his third and final missionary trip. In 61, this is where we are in Acts. In 61 AD, Paul goes to Rome and proclaims the kingdom of God and teaches Jesus as Lord for two years. In 174 A.D., the first Christians are reported in Austria. In 280 A.D., the first rural churches emerge in northern Italy. And Christianity is no longer exclusively an urban movement. In 350 A.D., 31.7 million Romans, or 57% of the Roman Empire, claimed Christ as their Lord because of one prisoner that was locked up in Rome. In 432, St. Patrick heads to Ireland, and we celebrate this every year by drinking beer and green beer and pinching each other. In 596, Gregory the Great sends Augustine to England to reintroduce the gospel in a place called Canterbury, and they baptize 10,000 people in the first two years. In 635, the first Christian missionaries go to China. In 740, Irish monks land in Iceland. In 900, missionaries reach Norway. By the year 1200, Um, The Bible is available in 22 different languages. In 1490, the first Christians report in Kenya. In 1501, the Pope Alexander VI grants to Spain all newly discovered lands in the Americas under the provision that religious education be provided for the natives. In 1537, Pope Paul III orders that the Indians of the New World be brought to Christ by the preaching of the divine word and by example of a good life. In 1554, 1,500 new Christians are reported in Thailand. In 1671, missionaries arrive in the Carolinas. In 1735, Charles and John Wesley come to America on a missionary journey. In 1784, the Wesleys ordain ministers and send them to America. In 1828, the Methodist Protestant Church is formed, which makes up the modern-day Methodist denomination. In 1937, Rising Tide Methodist Church gathers above a bakery in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. In 1939, Rising Tide builds a chapel at 3rd and 7th in what is considered the country. In 1962, the first Walmart opens in Rogers, Arkansas. In 1986, the Walmart at Beach in San Pablo open. In September 8th, 1122 service begins. October the 9th of 2009, because of space concerns, seven twenty-two begins in the fall of two thousand eleven. Again, because of space concerns, six twenty-two service begins in March of two thousand eleven. Beach United Methodist Church, led by Pastor Jerry Sweat, announces the launch of a new church that will be led by an overeducated redneck from Dillon, South Carolina. <laughs> in June June two thousand eleven, a team finds a vacant Walmart and gets to work. On September the 23rd of 2012, the launch of the Church of 1122, and on March the 2nd, 2014, the Church of 1122 finishes a a year-and-a-half journey through the book of Acts, and God has saved over 1,000 people in that year-and-a-half. And you know why? Because one prisoner... One prisoner was faithful to God. He was faithful to God. And he proclaimed the gospel with boldness and without hindrance. So here's the point. Church of 1122, it's our turn. It's our turn to do exactly what Paul did. It's our turn to proclaim the kingdom of God and to teach about the lordship of Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And it's what we will continue to do. That we will proclaim the good news of Jesus with all boldness. Now listen. Boldness means not hesitating or fearful in the face of danger. Boldness means not hesitating to break the rules of propriety. Boldness means needing courage. Boldness means imagination that we will be bold in the proclamation of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean to be weird. That doesn't mean to be rude. It doesn't mean to be a jerk. You know what boldness means? Boldness means saying something instead of nothing. Boldness means tomorrow when you're at work and somebody says what'd you do this weekend that you say, well I went to this church in the old Walmart that might be bold for you Boldness might be might be um having enough courage in your office place to say hey, can I pray for you? I know you're going through a rough time And they go, you know what? I don't really even believe in prayer and I'm like that's fine because God does and that's what's important that you would be bold or boldness might be confronting heresy Or boldness might be sharing your testimony with somebody that God has placed in your life. Or boldness might be extending an actual invitation. Say, hey, next week we start a new series called The Seven Deadly Sins. You'll fit right in most of the weeks. (laughs) And not a non-vite, like you should come sometime. But an invite, like I'll meet you at the Starbucks across the corner at 11 so we can get here on time. That kind of invitation. Or boldness for some of you might be actually just walking through the doctrines of grace and the gospel with people to be bold but Paul wasn't brash we want to be bold in the proclamation of gospel but that doesn't mean that we have to be brash about it what it means to be brash is to be tactless to be hasty to be so energetic or highly spirited that you come across irreverent that we should be Boldly proclaim the gospel. Why? That's how we got here, folks. Because the apostle Paul was so committed and bold and proclaimed the word without hindrance. That, that from that jail cell in just a 300 years that more than 50% of the Roman Empire that actually wanted to stamp out Christianity became Christians. And Rome became the epicenter of all communication even for the modern western world. The crossroads of the whole world went through Rome. And so that's where God placed Paul. To proclaim the gospel with boldness and without hindrance. And the same God that placed Paul there has placed you wherever he's placed you. To boldly proclaim without hindrance. Not to be brash and rude and a jerk about it. But to love people enough that you would call them to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so 1122, listen, we are a movement for all people and for us to continue to be a movement for all people where God is moving and God is saying, saving, then we've got to continuously be faithful to proclaim the kingdom of God, to teach the lordship of Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. I got an email this week from somebody that's moved to North Carolina and just I just wanted you to hear these words from her. <clears throat> she says this, she says, I'm sitting in a coffee shop right now, thinking about how much my life and my knowing Jesus better has been influenced by certain people who've been faithful to say yes to Jesus' call in their own lives. My husband and I had the privilege to call the Church of 1122 our home from its beginning at Beach until about six months ago when we knew that God was calling me to be obedient to take a position as a doctor at Duke Children's Hospital in North Carolina. In the current position I'm working in pediatric oncology and bone marrow transplant. I see death on a daily basis. But in the wake of having a child die, God has also given me the opportunity to, in one of the most liberal institutions I can think of, to share his hope with families. And as I think about this amazing opportunity and how God has now called us to get plugged in at the Summit Church here in the Durham area, I feel like the church of 1122 was the place where we were poured into and the place where we were nudged or maybe more like shoved right out of our comfort zone and the place where we made friendships that continued to be sources of light in this journey God has called us on. Church of 1122 was a part of making us free and now we get to share that freedom with others. So as I sit here today, thanking God for the 40 years we spent in Jacksonville as a period of training us For where we are now, I just wanted to take five minutes to let you all know that we are incredibly thankful for your faithfulness to the city of Jacksonville and to our own walk with Jesus. Never stop. I felt like those were words from the Holy Spirit himself when I was reading that email from Jen in North Carolina and she said, never stop. Church of 1122, we must never stop being a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. We will never stop corporately proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We'll never stop. But it's not just a corporate commitment, it's also an individual as a part of the family commitment that you individually must never stop. Boldly and without hindrance proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ wherever he has placed you the context that makes sense in your situation that you would boldly and without hindrance share the love of God that has transformed your life the hope of Israel Jesus Christ the suffering servant Messiah Son of God that said it is finished so that our sins could be finished and we could know him we could know God as our heavenly father And everybody's been invited. And everybody comes in the same way. And everybody's price has already been paid. And we must never stop communicating that message. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you that you love us, that you sent your Son to die for us. God. God, we know that we've been placed on purpose. And Lord, that you have placed us in the lives of our friends and family members. And God, help us partner with this movement, this church, to just boldly proclaim the kingdom of God and to teach about the lordship of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray for boldness in this place, not brashness, God. We're not called to be rude or tactless. We are called to be bold, imaginative, and without fear that we would share the good news, the love, both in proclamation and in demonstration. God, we thank you and we praise you for those that you've already drawn unto yourself. And God, we thank you in advance because your heart is that none would perish and that whosoever would believe in you would not perish. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, the way we're gonna respond today is maybe there's somebody in your life that you need to be in prayer for That you might have the boldness to share an invitation or to share a question or to share a prayer over. And that you could come to the altar right now and pray to a God that hears your prayers and can do something about them. And you would come here and you would pray for that one that God has placed in your life. That you could proclaim the kingdom of God. And that you could teach about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. With boldness and without hindrance. I hope you'll come.